Previously on Drinks with Tony. This is Ben Laurie. How terrible would that be? I don't feel like I have to do any pretending at all. I don't know what the question is. And 100 of them have been lost. That excite you? The Vatican. Whoa! Yeah, no, it can be tough. To just to see like a nipple? Thanks for having me. Get on the Drinks with Tony show! Yeah! Okay, you're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. We're here today with Shauna Kenny. She is the author of I Was a Teenage Dominatrix and Live at the Safari Club. Hi, Shauna. Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm, so, well, I'm stoked to finally get you. <laughs> I am so hard to get. I, know, I, know. I mean, come on. <laughs> so well, your book, Live at the Safari Club, you wrote with your husband, yeah? Yes. It's an oral history of a punk club in D.C. that I booked for a couple of years, but the club was open for 10 years, so it covers a period of period from 1988 to 1998. And we interviewed bands that played there, people who worked there, promoters, people who went there just for fun for years until it burned down. DC that I booked for a couple of years, but the club was open for 10 years, so it covers. A what was it like growing up in DC and being in the punk rock scene uh, in those years? Let's talk a lot about that because I'm, I'm like I just saw a minor th I just saw a minor threat. Did you see minor threat photo, the new one? Yeah, it was so cute. Yeah, um, yeah, they were a huge influence on me. I actually grew up in Southern Maryland, about an hour and a half south of DC, in a small town. Um, but we would, as soon as I was a teenager, we were driving to DC for shows at the 9:30 Club. And then as soon as I was old enough to move out of my home, I moved to DC and had roommates, and then started booking bands at this sort of rundown Ethiopian disco and we held all ages hardcore matinees there on Saturdays and I now I feel very lucky to have grown up in that scene of like in the shadow of the straight edge scene <laughs> you know like like my punk experience wasn't all about sex drugs and rock and roll you know it was it was very straight edge and kind of innocent and got us into vegetarianism and you know, being activists, I mean, the punk scene in D.C. is very politically active. Every show I went to was a benefit for some nonprofit, or we did punk per uh, percussion protests in front of the White House, and growing up in the Reagan era, just very aware of everything that was going on. So now I'm really grateful, looking back, and like knowing that not every punk scene was like that. Because you're, I, I, you know, it's weird when I think of DC punk and I think of Washington, DC, it doesn't connect in my head. And you just connected it, how close you are to like the pol political bullshit right in your face almost. Yeah, yeah. We, it, we're right in the center of the, the seat of power, you know, the center of the, well, it felt like the, the leaders of the free world at the time. So the punk scene itself was pretty politically active. Like we couldn't not be. Yeah. Because, you know, a lot of kids, their parents are senators, congressmen, kids in the scene, or they are there because of their parents are being dipl diplomats or working for the military or being involved in politics in some way. So it's just kind of part of our world. Now, how did you know, how did you figure out that you can book bands? Like, how old were you? And when did you go, you know what, I can get into this and I'm going to approach band and I'm going to approach place? Oh, um, well, I think that's just part of the punk DIY culture, yeah, right? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, um, Discord put out their own records and they were like folding the record company 
covers and gluing them together and mailing them out. So I grew up with good role models in the punk scene. I saw other people making their own yeah. fanzines and making their own labels. I had my own fanzine when I was 16. I think that's actually, you know, that was the beginning of my writing, I yeah. guess, because it was just a way to get all my feelings out, my bad poetry and record reviews, and I, I knew I could make my own magazine in high school. So that I feel like booking shows was just an extension of that. Like, I was 16, I think that's actually, you know, that was the beginning of my writing, I yeah. guess, because it was just like a flyer with my friends. I can call my friends' bands. Uh, I mean, I think most punk kids are empowered like that. Like, you're, you're not sitting around waiting for somebody else to do it for you. And some of the bigger clubs were run by corporations, so this was something that was separate from all of that. See, I grew up around, about, around a bunch of lazy idiots, so that's... <laughs> Empowered like that. Like, you're, you're not sitting around waiting for somebody else to do it for you. Um, what was the name of your, uh, your zine that you started? No Scene Zine. Yeah. Because I lived in a little bumfuck town in Southern yeah. Maryland, and I felt like there was no scene, man. <laughs> Empowered like that. Like, you're, you're not sitting around waiting for somebody else to do it for you. Doing our zine and hanging out together, putting on little shows together in the country. Um, but we really felt like we were separated from, we were about an hour and a half from DC and an hour and 10 minutes from Baltimore. So those were the two big cities oh, where we wow. felt like everything was happening. But here we are on this peninsula in Maryland where there's nothing but a Navy base and Amish people. So it's pretty remote. What is, what is it like, in the, especially in those years, to be so different in a community that probably saw punk rock and went, oh my God, they're, yeah, 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 here they come, take it over. Well, I guess we were, I mean, it was good that there were a handful of other punks and skaters because I've, at least we're all freaks together. Um, but there were locals, there were people who, whose families had been there like since the Pilgrims for 300 years oh, yeah. and, and farmers and Amish people and, you know, people we called rednecks <laughs> and those were the people who would like throw beer cans at us right. from truck windows <laughs> for having mohawks or whatever yeah, yeah. um so yeah there's a little bit of that but um we were all freaks together so there was some kind of community going on you know i i it's to the point where i miss rednecks throwing beers at me and <laughs> yelling the yelling shit at me on the street because it was just I look back on that where I was like oh god here you know now I'm getting my beating and now it's just like oh I wish people would still do that <laughs> now it's normal like now you know if you have a mohawk or blue hair or yeah. nose ring it's yeah. normal you don't get beat up for that kind of stuff anymore well, most of the people I know with blue hair are in their 50s <laughs> but someone I was I'm, I was writing a screenplay with a friend of mine and um it's set in the small town where I grew up, and I wanted to put the scene in where the two main girls are walking by and some rednecks throw a beer can out the window at them and call them bitches or whatever. And, and he was like, "Did that? does that really happen? Wow. I mean, he, he grew up in a pretty privileged situation. So he, it took a while for me to convince him, like, that was a real thing in the 80s. Yeah. You, you got harassed for a little call them bitches or whatever right. and and he was like did that does that really happen wow. I mean yeah. he I know I, you know, I like, what could you do to really get harassed on the street now you you can count your hundred dollar bills in the air I guess oh, yeah. or wave them around you. No, 
no, no. Then or they would just like take your money. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I could figure out a way to get harassed. Walk around with no. I'm trying to get harassed. I mean, I'm glad that those days are over, but. Yeah. Walk around with no pants and hundred dollar bills in the air and see what happens on Santa Monica and uh That's a good social experiment. <laughs> yeah, we'll get we'll get you somebody else. That, Tony. Uh, we'll get somebody else <laughs> I could figure out a way to get harassed. Walk around That's with no trying to get harassed. I, I mean I'm glad that those days are over. Bring us anywhere. No, it br- nowhere. Pantsless right. with lots of money. Exactly. <laughs> in my head, it brought me to your uh, your memoir, I was a teenage dominatrix, which is also is that I can't remember was that set in DC or yes yeah um, I moved away from Southern Maryland when I was 17 and I lived in DC and was trying to figure out how to go to college and without any money without any parental support um, stumbled upon an ad in the, the city paper yeah. that said get paid to be a bitch yeah. and I thought hey people have called me that I could get paid for that. And I didn't really know what that meant. Um, And I answered an ad and kind of found myself into this world of professional domination and was mentored by a headmistress and worked in a dungeon and paid for school by working as a pro dom for five years. What I find, um, because, well, one of my uh, ex-girlfriends, she she also worked as a dominatrix. And... um, some of the stuff she just taught me about the re- about relationships inside the dungeon as well as like outside. I went, oh, there's a there's kind of a connection with like um, the 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 the, the, oh, the, the we got a helicopter. Uh, Ch- KTL News is uh is is putting a spotlight on us there. Help! Help! I'm being interviewed. <laughs> Save me! Help! Help! I have a podcast. I think I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> Okay. Uh, what what was the stupid shit I was talking about? Uh, oh yeah, how how the uh, how what happens in there it kind of reflects like even in corporations or how people like are the 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 hierarchy of dominance and versus submissive in life. I'm, I oh, yeah. tell me I'm going tell me I'm going way like too uh, inter dungeon relationships like between yeah and how and how it how it could relate to like real life. She showed me. Um, well, okay. <laughs> it's real life, Tony. No, no, no. I know this is more my problem than anything. But um, that like she would, uh, she would point out somebody and she'd be like, "Oh, he's um he's being dominant uh from the bottom," and oh. words like that. And I kind of went, "Oh, interesting." And then I and then I started to see those personality traits. Yeah. And and like those people, I kind of didn't like so much anymore. Yeah. Oh, I never did. But I was like, that's why I don't like them. He's um he's being dominant uh, from the bottom, and uh, words like that. And I kind of repeating themselves in mainstream society. Right. You know, people being dominant or trying to be a power bottom or <laughs> whatever right. it may be. I don't know. I don't really use those terms anymore. Um, but yeah, it certainly colored the way I started to see people yeah. at the time. And I didn't have a lot of sexual experience right. at all yeah. at that point, you know? Like, so it um, it taught me. I mean, it was a, it was a huge education yeah. <laughs> in yeah. one way because I, I just didn't even know all that was out there and, right. you know, that there was sort of something for everyone. And um, it opened my mind in a lot of ways. I grew up 
Catholic and uh, military small town family, you know, so it really gave me the sex education, I guess, that I didn't get. <laughs> I, I, and I, I read your book so long ago because we traded books. That's I think right. we first, yeah, yeah, because yeah. of the sim similarity in titles. Right. I, I was intrigued by yours. Yeah, I was yeah. like, oh, I was a teenage Jesus freak. I was a teenage dominatrix. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And they both have a lot of similarities. Uh, no, they don't. Yours is much more, much more biblical, I think. Yours is much better written. I wasn't a very sophisticated writer. Oh, <laughs> thank you. That's my disclaimer. No, at the same time, I think you're uh, being uh, self-deprecating uh, self because your, your book goes into the, into the mind of it. And so I, I just remember really enjoying how it, you just took the experience and didn't um, you did it well, but you did it well, and you're a mem you teach memoir. You do you do this shit good for a reason. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've learned a lot along the way, yeah. but I hadn't had any writing classes when I wrote that book. Really? Uh, yeah. I mean, my only writing experience was my zine in high school, and then yeah. the school newspaper. I wrote for, um, and the school newspaper in college. I was writing for them and, I, and then I started writing for a music magazine so I was doing a lot of music journalism yeah. but I ne had never really written about myself yeah. and I still find myself to be not as interesting as I, I love shining the light on other people that's what I love about journalism yeah. you know and what you, I, what's I had never really written about myself yeah. and I still find myself to be not as interesting. Give us a call. Um, oh, God. What was I? We were talking about uh, writing experience, journalism, teaching, memoir. Okay. Um, I, 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 if I remember right, you brought this, this up in the book that, I mean, you couldn't tell your parents what you were doing as a dominatrix. Did they ever find out? Um, well, they found out when the book came out. <laughs> So I was pretty young when I, I was 28 when I wrote it and yeah. 29 when it came out. Um, and my parents did not know what I was doing because they had disowned me for being in an in, in interracial relationship. I don't know if that was oh. only like two sentences oh, in the book, yeah. but I had to explain where my parents were yeah. and why I didn't have any support or um, contact with them for a few years. So they didn't know how what I was doing or how I was paying for anything period. Right. Um, we reconnected as I was finishing college and sort of made amends in our relationship. But the book, <laughs> the book coming out a few years after that kind of set things back a little bit. Um, I probably should have given them a heads up, but honestly, I wrote the book thinking no one would read it. <laughs> I was, I was really naive. I mean, um, it was on a really teeny tiny publisher. It was a married couple publishing books out of their home here in LA. And they were making all this money off of their fetish sites. And they had a couple books in print and encouraged me to write my own memoir. And I'd read a few sex work memoirs and I was really kind of disappointed with how the, some of the stories didn't ring true to me to, to, as compared to my experience. And a lot of them were written under pseudonyms and after a lot of thinking I thought you know I'm not ashamed of my story and so I'm never gonna write under a fake name I've worked hard for this byline you know getting it into newspapers and magazines yeah. and two my story is different than all the other stories I'd read like um, I was just coming from a different place I, I'm not ashamed of my story and so I'm never gonna write under a fake name 
I've worked hard for any of those situations. That just wasn't my situation. It, I, it was a job that I chose to do to pay for school. Yeah. And I'm just like a nerdy, straight-edge punk kid. Yeah. You know? And that, so that's the point of view that I was coming from. And I felt like it was important to tell my story, too. Because there are a million different sex worker stories. Right. You know? I think that, well, for me every story has to come from utter honesty and so when it comes from utter honesty and it's crafted well then i'm in i don't care what the, what the yeah. story is about yeah story that's how i feel about. as yeah. a reader too like whether it's fiction yeah. memoir creative nonfiction. yeah if if if, if, it, if there's the essence of truth and honesty then yeah. you've got a story did you know your parents would disown you for being in that type of relationship no, i was kind of blindsided about yeah. that whole thing um you know, because I mean, because I mean, well, you know, it just it's it's not like it's over, you know, and when and if you ever, yeah, that you was know, never said in yeah. our house. And um, I went to a very mixed school, even if you look at the Wikipedia page for my high school now, it's like 49 percent Caucasian and 51 percent African-American. I mean, I've always gone to mixed schools and churches and raised Catholic and taught to love my neighbor and um, my dad and his side of the family yeah I definitely heard racist jokes growing up but um, they didn't the way they acted in their everyday life my parents they were they seemed very accepting of everyone it's just I guess I crossed some line that I didn't know existed yeah. when I fell in love with someone who is black right. <laughs> um, and it was basically my first true love you know my first big love and they hadn't met him yet and they heard about it secondhand and I guess in a small town it just and this was the 80s right. in Washington DC um, predominantly black city um, lots of things going on in the 80s in DC um, and I guess just my parents being from a small town and a small community and worrying about what other people think it just you know got the worst of them you know yeah. it, just, it brought out the worst in them um, so I was really shocked and blindsided by that whole thing that's enough fodder for another book someday if I were to write it yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah I was really I was deeply hurt and and it took a long time to forgive and, and try to move on from. Did they ever get to meet him? No. No. No, we brought, I mean, we stayed together. I, and in, in a way, I think it kind of pushed us together further. You oh, know, it was, yeah, this, yeah. it was kind of a new relationship. Um, and I didn't have the, the chance to actually introduce them properly. They, they just blew up at the idea of it before I had that opportunity. So it kind of pushed us two together. Um, closer, faster, right. moved in together, um, and then we broke up for other reasons, right. you know, two years into it, but still, just the idea that I felt like unconditional love did not exist in my family, yeah, yeah. so just that idea, like, kept me separate from them for a long time. Yeah, I bet. And it's, and, there's, and there's something so beautiful about first love where you kind of want to share it with your family. You're like, hey, I, I figured this shit out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, um, and, that, and I think that's where punk rock comes in for me, too. Like, for me, it's beyond community. Like, it really did serve as a family for yeah. me. And it still does. 
Like I, I feel like I have punk rock family all over the world yeah. because of the scene I grew up in. And, um, and maybe more so because I was disconnected from my biological family. You know, I, those are the people who supported me through the hard times. Those are the people who gave me a place to sleep when I didn't have a roof over my head or gave me food to eat or money or whatever I needed. You know, that it hasn't been blood related, you know, it's been sort of ideology yeah. related, you know. And that's, um, and that's what, that's why we need these stories and, you know, the, 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 what, what was happening in the eighties, what was happening in the nineties, because yeah. people really don't understand what a different world we live in. It, yeah. It's just like, yeah, actually, and people have asked me, like, do you think, um, you know, if, if you, met a guy like that now or you know like your parents would have given you such a hard time and I don't really know I, I don't know if they changed over the years at all but I I hope society has changed a little bit you know I see lots of multicultural families yeah. and um and it didn't deter me from dating outside my ethnicity after right. that you know I happened to end up with a white guy but <laughs> um you know I'd, I'd like to think that things have changed for the better. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you ended up with a white guy who has a beard. So that I'm totally on board. <laughs> and, yeah, and Not tattoos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and a Star Wars collection. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Is that why your husband asked me right away about Star Wars when I came? He's like, Wait. Yeah. he's a little bit of a fanatic. Not to make it like he, not to make it like he's on the spectrum and came up to me and was like, "Hi, Tony, do you like Star Wars?" Uh, it was more because we were talking about Jehovah's Witness stuff, and then he's like, "Oh, you couldn't do this, but could you see Star Wars?" So, Any chance to work in Star Wars? Right. You know, he he'll find a way. But it was a really good question, <laughs> so that's that's that's, that's why. Yeah, I, 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 didn't, I didn't want to make it like it was just. <laughs> <laughs> no. And then so. Um, uh, are you, uh, let's let's talk about how to keep a okay. So because this intrigues me to this intrigues me to no end because I'm you know I'm I was in a I was married for 13 years and divorced but I was in a marriage that was kind of a Jehovah's Witness marriage and just wrong on so many levels from the start. Now I know what a real relationship's like. I was like, oh, that had nothing to do with my marriage. Yeah. So what? In, let's talk about how to keep a okay. So because this intrigues me to this intrigues me to no end because I'm you know I'm. I, what is it that keeps just a relationship together and continue nurturing? Oh my God, I never want to answer these questions because yeah. I feel like I'll jinx it. Especially in front, of, especially in front of your husband who's watching us. Well, <laughs> well he's video. He's got he's got two he's got two videotapes going on us. No, do you feel like you're on the spot, Shauna? Okay, yes, you're on the spot. Go. No, I've had friends ask me. You know, we've been together since '95. That's 23 years. That's half of his life. Yeah. Um, and I. I hesitate to give any advice to anyone or say why it works or why it doesn't because one, I don't want to jinx it. <laughs> well, do you, do you ever step back and go, wow, this is good because of blank? Yeah. I mean, I just posted on Instagram the other day after we took a five mile hike, I put this little, little, um, these, these few thoughts underneath the photo saying five mile hike, um, same advice for a happy marriage, share snacks, uh, laugh a lot, champion one another, and never ever forget how lucky you are. And like, that's basically it. <laughs> Actually, those four sentences are the book on how to stay together and if, find the right person and, and yeah, share snacks. Share snacks. Yeah. 
laugh a lot, yeah. champion one another, yeah. and never ever forget how lucky you are. Yeah. But sharing snacks is really number one. That's interesting. Yeah, because I've been on dates where um, I've been on dates where they oh, I go, oh, that looks good. Can I? You know, and they're like, no. And I'm like, well, this is over right now. You know, I don't care if you're a known a writer. You know, we were out with a couple one time, who uh, the woman reached over for a first bite of her boyfriend's meal, and he got so mad at her. Oh, wow. Even though they'd been together a long time, it wasn't like a first date or anything. Um, I think they'd been together like 10 years. And he got really annoyed and was like, damn it, you always do that, blah, blah, blah. And we just went home talking about that. We were like, we eat off each other's plates. We share everything. And it's never even a thought. And so just seeing that, I think, was really startling to both of us. Like, how can you treat someone like that? Yeah, exactly. So. And then that's almost kind of putting the other person down in front of people. Like, we off each other's plate. We share everything. Yeah. And it was, it's never even a thought. And so just seeing that. I don't mind. I, I don't mind a little. Like if I see. <laughs> I w- yeah, yeah. And that's important. You have to bicker. Yeah, you have to bicker. Yeah. I mean, uh, one of my friends, he just had his 30th wedding anniversary. Mm-hmm. And I told him, hey, dude. Um, if, if this was your wedding, I would have never come for this, but I, it's your 30th. Now that's a celebration. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then I say, what, you know, I was like, what's it like being married for 30 years? And he just goes, Oh, a lot of work. (laughs) (laughs) Funny. So then I, and then I was talking to his wife and I was like, it's so great. You've been married for 30 years. What's it like? She's like. Oh, a lot of work. And that at least they both see it the same way. Like yeah. one thinks it's a lot of work and the other one thinks it's a snap or something. Right. You know? And and that's when I just went, that's a couple that's gonna stay to, stay together forever and is fucking amazing and I hope I get that one day. Aw, yeah. I hope you do too. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't even feel like it's a lot of work. I mean it's some work sometimes. Right. But most of the time, it's fun. And we've always said, we didn't even believe in marriage. We got married for the health insurance, <laughs> a very unromantic reason. Yeah, and then yeah. when we got Obamacare, we joked that we should get divorced now because we each have our own health care. <laughs> That's interesting. Would, would it work better? For, now, I can't remember tax-wise and all that stuff. Is it, does it work better single or married? I don't know, but we just, we just realized that we could actually not be married now and both still be insured. But at the time, there was a time when one of us had a job that had insurance and one didn't. Right. So it was just more practical to get married. Yeah. Um, even though we'd already been together eight years and we were both like, oh, marriage, who needs a fucking piece of paper? Exactly. I don't need the government to tell me that right. I'm going to stay with you or whatever. Um, so we're both kind of anti-marriage and very pro-divorce. Like when, <laughs> when people tell me they're having marital problems, <laughs> quick to the divorce yeah yeah if you don't like this person then why spend every day with them so but anyway we've always said for as long as it's fun like if it gets to a point where it's not fun anymore then we need to go our separate ways and wish you well and i know it's not always (laughs) neat and clean and easy for people but fortunately so far we're still having fun 23 years later so well, and I, I, I mean, I, I don't think it's just uh, you've been having fun for 23 years. There's also a, yeah. de- a development of such a huge trust and really knowing each other where 
it's like even more fun after 23 years to a point. Yeah, it's cool that you can still, well, yeah, there's that deep understanding of one another, uh, of another human being that you yeah. won't really get with anyone else. Yeah. And then it's also cool that after 23 years, you can still learn yeah. something about one another like you know hear a childhood memory that just bubbled up or right. or learn of a new quality that was hidden all this time you know like right. that's exciting to me too and still make each other laugh yeah you know I think that's really important if you're totally bored with the other person <laughs> or they're driving you nuts like what's the point right you know but he's my favorite person and I'd rather hang out with him than anyone right yeah that's when you know it's. That's when you know you're in the right spot. And it, it, 23 years, I don't think it's it's ending anytime soon or later. You know. Who knows? We we're. I mean, part of it is luck too. You know. Oh, yeah. I, you know, part of it's a conscious decision, and part of it is just lucky that we met at the right time in the right place. And we've we figured out that. I mean, he's from the DC punk scene too but he's three years younger and you know when you're younger like that can seem like a generation so when I was booking shows at the safari club I was 18 he was 15 still in high school so I wouldn't have even looked his way you know we figured out we were in the same rooms like 500 times over at many of the same punk shows not just mine but shows around DC and um, you know we met in 95 through a mutual friend and that's probably when we were supposed to meet yeah. You know, because I had a boyfriend uh, when I was 18 and he was still in high school. Rich was still in high school and yeah. we, it just wouldn't have been a match at that point. But we met when we were supposed to. Uh, yeah. yeah. I totally believe in that timing and synchronicity yeah. stuff. Yeah, we both were mature enough to be open to one another. And, and, we stu- and we didn't know where it was going. He was a new friend. I met him in my last year of college, my last year as a dominatrix, <laughs> um, and a bunch of my friends and I were supposed to go backpacking through Europe when we graduated, and so we were all saving our money, and um, I met Rich through a mutual friend and told him what we were doing. He said, cool, I'll save my money too, I'm going to come along, and when the time came, none of my friends had their money together, but he did, <laughs> so it was just going to end up being the two of us. And I gave him this big talk before we left, like, don't think because we're going to Europe together that we are a couple. And <laughs> I kind of knew, that he, everyone knew that he had a crush on me. Um, <laughs> and I was like, you know, we may each meet people, we're going to go our separate ways, but we'll head over there together. And he was like, I understand, I get it, I totally agree, but I'm going with you. And then we went to Europe for four weeks and we're inseparable and just had the best time ever and never went our separate ways (laughs) and then when I came home I had been sort of loosely dating two different guys and when I got home from that trip I went out with each of them and kind of realized how horrible they both were and was thinking like I just had the best time with this amazing guy you know for 30 days in Europe never had a fight was seeing the world and these two idiots like can't even ask me about my trip (laughs) you know like it it just the light bulb went on for me and that I was kind of ignoring a good thing that was right in front of my face Wow. yeah so through this whole trip through Europe you did not 
have any um like intimacy or I'm not uh, saying that. <laughs> oh, oh, oh! I mean, yeah, yeah. like okay. not for the first few weeks, but um, yeah. we always joke that um, we started in London and then we went to Switzerland and then we went to see a friend in Denmark and um, all down through Germany and Italy. And then we went to the Greek islands for about a week. And we always joke that by the time we got to Greece, we were in love. Like and we didn't say it, but we messed around in Greece. And what could be more romantic than that blue water and beautiful air and food and backpacking with just little sheets and <laughs> a few pair of underwear on our back, you know? Yeah. Like, it was really a shoestring budget uh -huh. trip, you know? It was like, that's in the day before the internet, right. the days of the Lonely Planet yeah. book, you know, my nose in a book, like trying to find all the things I wanted to see and him wanting to tear up the book and saying, let's just go wild and see <laughs> where this train takes us. and. Um, yeah, so, yeah, we got romantic by the end of the wow, trip. Yeah. And then when we got home and I broke up with those two guys and realized I had a good guy in front of me, um, the next obstacle was I had planned to move to California right. I was okay. by myself. Uh -huh. And I was like, well, I'm, you know, I'm done with school. So in, this was like September of 94. I said in January, I'm moving to California by myself. I've been writing for some skateboarding magazines out there. I'm hoping maybe they'll hire me. And Rich was like, all right, I'm coming with you. And I was like, no, I'm scared. I was so scared of him coming with me because I felt like, what if he hated it? And then he would blame me for tearing him away from his family and friends 3,000 miles away. We don't know anyone here. Um, I didn't want to really be responsible for someone else's happiness, you know? Yeah, yeah. I was like, it's one thing if I set out and yeah. experiment, but I don't want to take this nice kid away from his <laughs> family. <laughs> but he was like, no, I'm going with you. It's, and if I don't like it, I'll leave. Yeah. You know, whatever. I'm going with you. Yeah. So we threw everything into a U-Haul and drove cross country and stayed with a friend from high school in San Diego for three days and found an apartment on the beach. And Lived in San Diego for a year and then found ourselves coming up to L.A. all the time. So there was more going on here. We moved up here. Uh, so what So what was it that made you want to move to California? Why Why choose um, San Diego and Los Angeles? Um, well, I, I had always wanted to live in California. I just, from everything I'd seen, it sounds really silly now, but everything I'd seen in magazines and on television and movies, I felt like I'd fit into the culture better. And ha I guess like growing up, having grown up in a small, conservative, repressed town, Catholic military family, like I just always kind of felt different, like I didn't fit into that culture. Um, so I kind of had this California dream in mind, but I also, I was conceived here. My dad was in the Navy and was stationed in Long Beach and my mom, my parents are from New York. I was born in New York. Um, so my mom came out and lived here for about a year and then found out she was pregnant and my dad got sent to Vietnam. Um, oh, so wow. they moved back to New York so that she could have me among family and he was in Vietnam when I was born. Wow. So I always had this, I guess I felt like I had um, a connection to California like I wanted to know what it was like yeah. here and I imagined my parents life here just in that year and was sort of fascinated with it but also I was into punk rock and skateboarding and uh, that 
culture, you know, really yeah. interested me too. And I felt like, oh, th those are my people. I've got to get there. Yeah. And what were some of the things, if you remember, uh, that were kind of like culture shocks when you came here, when you're like, oh, wow, I wasn't expecting that. Uh, <laughs> I guess just the, the, it's the overall laid backness, you know, yeah, like I remember going on job interviews, being super dressed up, you know, in heels and uh, matching suit and, you know, suit jacket and skirt and fully made up. And in D.C., everyone works for the government or for some big nonprofit and um, dresses pretty conservatively. And people just people present differently here. And, and even um, like Rich, he would go on job interviews. <laughs> he got one job when we first moved here and they were like, yeah, we knew we were going to hire you right away because you wore a tie. It's <laughs> 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 like, what? Like, that's just automatic. It's the East wow. Coast mentality. Yeah. You know, you dress up for a job interview and um, you are where you say you're going to be. And you're, I don't know, I think there's like a certain work ethic that comes along with being an East Coaster. Not saying Californians are lazy or anything, but it's just a different mindset, yeah. I guess. And I, I like—I think I've benefited from that. Like, it's made me—it's made me a little more laid back. I, I can be pretty wound up when I want to be. So, right, right. so it's been good for me. Yeah, it's interesting. Like the culture of San Francisco and that area where I grew up, um, it would be a suit and tie to interviews, and it was there was a there was a little it, there is a difference, but. In Los Angeles, if you're late by a minute, you're dead. That's what I've learned about LA. Really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, for like in professional setting, yeah, you feel yeah. like, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I guess so. I don't know. People just seem so chill here to me. Yeah, like, yeah. I was on the bus one time. Yes, I ride the bus. I know that's really a shock to everyone. But I ride my bike and I ride that? the bus. But I was the, 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 this. Uh, yeah, the people don't understand that the public transit in LA is pretty damn good if you can navigate it. it and works. yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't use it all the time. But I was on the bus one time, a really crowded bus going down Sunset, and um, we all had to move to the back because a new group of people came on. And some guy was sort of elbowing his way through, getting on, and he was like, God damn it, blah, 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 swearing as he's trying to find a place to hold on to the, the uh, thing at the top of the bus. Um, and he was just swearing and being obnoxious, and someone yelled from the back of the bus, Yo, chill, this is L.A., not New York. <laughs> and busted up laughing and he did he like sort of calmed down and self-censored yeah yeah <laughs> and that just cracked me up i was like okay these are the kind of moments that just make me love la yeah you know they're just like they were just aware of what was going on and how they are and how he was being and it just didn't fit into the culture yeah <laughs> And also what I love about L.A., I mean, well, we even went to see Maria Bamford together, which is like at a it was at a strip mall that doesn't look like anything. A little comedy club. And you can yeah. just catch the most amazing people. And there's so many talented people in the city and and you can just catch them in these weird little one off shows or. Right. Yeah. And I like seeing I like seeing the, you know people like Maria Bamford and all that in their and just in their normal environment because yeah. the the hype isn't there so it's not people aren't paying eighty dollars a ticket at the Palace of Fine Arts in San Francisco and the pressure's on it's just like there's no pressure I'm just doing my gig and I'm happy you're here it's yeah like, and she's working out her stuff and that's actually inspiring to me as right. an artist to see that 
even famous people have to work out their stuff. Yeah. 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 Constantly, constantly. And that's what's so much fun about being here because just, you know, the, we see the one, like, especially when I look at comedians or whatever, we see their one hour special, but we don't see the six nights a week. Yeah. They're doing three different sets around town. Yeah. How refined that is, yeah. how much work it took to get there. Yeah. You know, that I love seeing that whole process. Yeah. yeah. yeah and, um, I, I and I I I love the journalism you're doing because you do a lot of fun journalism. <laughs> um, the, the L.A. Yeah, well, no, like the L.A. River, the L.A. River piece, oh, and all, you know, it's yeah. just how how do you um, I, I guess you've always been writing here and there, um, and but maybe I don't know if it's writing more or just because I know you better now that I noticed your writing. Is that what's the case? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, I'm doing bigger stories and I guess my obsessions have changed like I don't do music writing anymore um, I got very bored being a music critic because I thought like who the fuck am I you know just because this band doesn't appeal to me doesn't mean they didn't work really hard on their album and it might right. not appeal to someone else I mean I just I don't like the idea of being an art critic arts critic right. um, but I like writing profiles I, I find people fascinating and everyone has a story and um, so that kind of just naturally led to doing more in-depth profiles and just following my obsessions. I, I just kind of follow my gut, you know, if uh, I've been riding my bike along the LA river for a long time and noticing these wild wilderness like backyards full of chickens and orchards and community gardens and all this stuff going on. So it was a part of the city I hadn't really been aware of before and I ended up pitching that story to KCET and and covering that and um, and any and I like to write about people on the margins and um, people on the fringes too so those kinds of stories are what's attracting me now yeah, yeah. Oh, it, it was that well, what, what was the story in there it was it narratively about the guy that's in prison and yeah it's called yeah. black Nazi skinhead <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Going along with our I was a right, theme right. here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that that is um, uh, it's an as told to piece. So I wrote it in his words. So it's, it's in the eye um, point of view. Um, and they were looking for as told to pieces. And I immediately thought of this guy. I didn't know him. But he is from the DC punk scene as well, and he was almost like an urban legend in my scene. Like I'd heard about him a little bit here and there through the years. Um, Leo, this biracial guy, went away to prison, and I heard through his girlfriend that he had joined a white power gang. Like that's all I knew of his story. And I was always like, wow, that's crazy. How does that work? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like was yeah. it a survival thing? And um, I kind of always wanted to know more, but then, you know, lived my life and forgot about it. Right. And then when Narratively had this call for As Told Two Pieces, they were particularly looking for stories of people who'd led secret lives. And I thought of him and I contacted his old girlfriend and asked, do you think Leo would tell me his story? And she said, I don't know. I'll ask him to add your email to his prison email list and you can ask him yourself. Yeah. Um, and I did, and he said, no, thank you. <laughs> and he was like, I don't have a lot of respect for journalists. I've been screwed before, blah, blah, blah. Um, whatever it is you want to do, I'm probably not interested, but thanks. So I wrote him back and said, okay, no problem. I'm, I'm not going to pitch the story then. And two days later, he wrote to me and said, oh, I just realized that you're the author of Live at the Safari Club, 
I got that book last year from my girlfriend. I'm on page 65 and 103. You're my homie. I'll tell you whatever you want. So it was kind of a just serendipitous situation. And, um, and then we started working together. You know, I, I kind of gave him a framework for how I saw us telling the story and gave him little writing assignments and he'd write by hand in his cell and then come to the community computer and wait in line and then type as quickly as he could and yeah. send me little sections and I'd make edits and send them back and it was kind of a long grueling process it was it took five months to write this story wow. um and now it's out yeah. so yeah and uh, it's and what's the title of the story so they can uh, google it and find it I was a black Nazi skinhead I mean, I wasn't personally, but, you know, that's the name of the story. <laughs> I was a teenage dominatrix. <laughs> That'd be funny if I cut this to edit it. So it's <laughs> and you're like, oh, my gosh, Shauna Kenny <laughs> coming out in a major way. <laughs> All these things I didn't know about you. <laughs> Now, to clarify, when you say that um, he was on page 64 and the other, the, the book that you did had a lot of photos. Yeah. So he was actually in the photos at yeah. the Safari Club. Yeah, he's in one group group photo with friends. Yeah. And then he's in a crowd shot. Yeah. That, I mean, he recognizes his head, his uh -huh. bald head in the crowd shot yeah. in the pit. But, you know, I wouldn't. Yeah. So it's cool that he was able to see that. And he's hyped on the book, too. Yeah. So it's cool. And I still don't know what he thinks of the story because he's been on lockdown. Their whole prison has been on lockdown for the past three weeks because he's in the prison where, where Whitey Bulger was just murdered, okay. um, which means they can't have email, phone calls. Oh. Um, they can't come out of their cells. So I mailed him. I printed out the story and mailed him some copies. Uh -huh. And they can still get their mail, but I still don't know right. what he thinks of it. And there were like three last little edits I had to do um, to get the story in on time just as he went on lockdown so yeah. hopefully he's cool with it i mean we'll see i mean we worked together on it for five months so most of it he's had a hand in yeah yeah and okay so now let's get to a topic that's even crazier you're um yeah you're doing these um tea salons that are <laughs> <laughs> i go wild with my tea and literary salons people they are so much fun. Uh, and yeah, I got, you have one at Book Show coming up. I can't yes. remember when. December 2nd. Okay. So I don't know if this will, will this be out before then? Um, I, well, I have no idea. What's today? <laughs> <laughs> this is like November 21st. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it'll be out before. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. yeah so I started co-hosting these literary tea salons with my friend Melissa, who I met in Denmark last year but Melissa makes these things called insult teacups and they're beautiful antique little teacups that say things in them like kindly fuck off or you'll do or no one yeah. likes you or we hate your baby um, and, it, <laughs> and her company is called Miss Havisham's Curiosities if anyone's interested as seen on Stephen Colbert he loves her teacups but anyway she has this teacup business and I, I love her cups and I've hosted literary events on and off over the years and I was thinking about getting back into it and we just decided to collaborate and make it a low tea instead of a high yeah, tea yeah. low tea and literature salon and feature two or three authors and tea and cakes and have a good time talking about writing Woo! Yeah. 
And, and I just I like that it's that so it's only a couple of authors, yeah. and we just and then we just get to hang out and have tea, yeah. like tea with other writers. <laughs> it's 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 just it's during the day. It's just rad. Yeah. No, I love it. That's totally it's so straight edge in a way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like yeah. there's writers with drinks in San Francisco, right? right, right. <laughs> there's yeah. tea with authors here. Yeah, and it's. It's funny, you know. I do like to go. I do like to go where there's there's a party atmosphere and there's wine and booze or whatever. But I also like to have, I you know, I crave conversations without anybody having alcohol. And it's just, oh, yeah. and it it just seems like people are on one side or the other. Mm. But I like to travel both worlds. Yeah, yeah. I, I, That's it's, cool. yeah I don't know if yeah. yeah. I, I I travel both worlds too. Um, but I don't like to hang out in bars. I'm yeah. a little like I just went to a friend's memorial that they held in a bar and I had to leave early because I just couldn't stand the smell. Oh, <laughs> like yeah. I probably sound so uptight, but um, that's just me. Yeah. You know, I was like, oh, why are we having it in a bar? And, you know, there's, I don't know, songs about heroin and he just died of an over, you know, just yeah. not into it. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, it is there's, it is nice to do the teas because you get a chance to mingle with the authors and talk to other writers. Yeah. I think it's just nice for writers to be amongst other writers, yeah. I think, because what we do can be kind of lonely. Yeah. You know. Kind of lonely. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Trying to do it without a, a, a husband or wife. <laughs> Even that. I feel sorry for him sometimes because you know how it is when you're writing. You're really in your yeah. own little vortex and uh, you know there's really no room for anyone around when you're in that zone and so it's yeah partners of writers are special people i think (laughs) yeah yeah when i was married um i we we had to set ground rules which kind of went back and forth over a year or so but then she finally got the hang of it where it's like no um i don't need to take out the garbage when i'm editing (laughs) it can wait two hours yeah 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 so but then i would you know but when then i'd be pissed that i you know and then i'd be like no i can't write now i'm taking out the garbage (laughs) yeah 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 Yeah, but then later she was like oh wait the the door's closed don't disturb and then and then that worked out well (laughs) yeah so what else well, I mean, uh, well, let's uh, we can close it out on because um, you do a lot of uh, personal narrative and you teach uh, memoir. Um, what uh, what what suggestions do you have for people who who feel like they have a story that they sh- that they need to tell and um, where where what would be a good idea for them to move forward and not move forward in the I'm gonna write 800 pages and self-publish it in two months that's you know the 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 real way yeah yeah um find a community i mean it might be just forming a little writing group with a few of your friends who like writing or it might mean taking a class or finding a writing coach but if you're not going to do it on your own because it is really hard to be self-motivated and write something that you're not sure if anyone will ever read or that anyone will ever like um I say seek, seek other writers out, yeah. you know, because you really need that support. And there's something about the accountability of even if you know you're meeting with these people once a month and you have to have pages or you're meeting with your coach once a week, and you have to have pages or you have to have your, you know, your workshop piece by a certain date yeah. for a class. It will at least keep you doing the work. Right. 
it, I mean, some people are incredibly self-motivated and can do that. But if, if you're really wondering where to get started, I always tell people, find a class, find a community group. It, it might be a free group at the library. Um, it might oh, be really <laughs> like what like you're that. like, like weird teachers like you do. No. <laughs> um, you know, or it might be just a, a class at a community college or it might yeah. be a gathering of a couple friends. You know, a couple, if you know a handful of people who are working yeah. on stuff, then meet up once a month. Yeah. But find your people. Find the tribe. Yes. <laughs> Vibe with your tribe. Sean and Kenny, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you for having me. That wasn't too bad, right? <laughs> Did you think it would be it bad? Too painful. Were you, were you kind of nervous about this? I should have asked for a safe word. <laughs> <laughs> My safe word is ouch. Purple unicorn. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Drinks with Tony with our guest, Sean and Kenny. Her book, live at the Safari Club, as well as I Was a Teenage Dominatrix, available for your reading pleasure. And now let's go into the Drinks with Tony archives. This week we have Steve Kilby, the lead singer of The Church. Sunday morning, <laughs> day is dawning. <laughs> yeah. No, keep going, that's okay. No, it's just the restless year. Look out, the world's behind you. Somewhere to catch you if you fall. How'd you like that? I like it a lot. Okay. <laughs> Hi, I'm Steve Kilby from the church. You're listening to Drinks with Tony on Pirate Cat Radio. I think there are certain people who, when they started writing songs, they sort of painted themselves into a corner in a way because they forever painted themselves as kind of angry or sexy young people. And then, like Mick Jagger, for example, and by the time he gets to 40, he hasn't got anywhere to go because he's never, he's never given himself the um, out to, to, to grow and become older and wiser and whatever. And I think that happens with a lot of rock and pop music that, that people sort of paint themselves into these corners. And one thing I think luckily the church avoided um, was that, that we always had room to go on kind of getting older and wiser and bringing our experience to the table instead of denying our experience and pretending that we're forever Peter Pan and singing about girls and cars. And I think that was kind of part of our original unspoken manifesto that we didn't want to be we didn't just want to be a pop band and though we were a pop band and I guess 25 years ago we were pretty and all those things but always kind of we always had this loophole that that wasn't all that we were going to be and and, and of course when we stopped kind of being that a lot of people stopped buying our records and stuff but there are there are people out there who sort of do appreciate this other kind of thing that you can you know, you can bring to things that when you've got a few kind of miles under your belt. Right, right. And um, when you talk about the longevity of the church, uh, mm -hmm. what, what about the uh, the chemistry within the band between the members? How how has that uh, stayed um, fresh for you? Well, I think I think if you have a group of people playing together for as long as we have, you will have chemistry, and and um, the freshness will come and go. But you've, 
if you persevere, you kind of you'll reach a point like a like a good football team, I guess. You reach a point where you start to read the other people, and nobody has to say anything. You can just kind of feel it. But I guess what happens with a lot of bands, a lot of combinations of people and, I don't know, marriages and partnerships is that people get angry and storm off and they never get back together and they never sort of, they never get the time under their belt to reap the rewards of familiarity. Um, and I guess at the moment we kind of, we sort of, you know, we have gone through periods where everybody's been tired of it and then we make a breakthrough and everybody's kind of back into it again. And I think at the moment we're into one of those back into it phases where we sort of... It's like learning a language, you know? Like, you, you go along for a while and you take it on faith and nothing seems to happen, you get really tired. And if you go, oh, fuck it, I'm never going to learn French, that's the end of it. But if you keep going, then one day, you know, you find yourself in Paris fucking talking. And... um I think the church is like that. We've just kept going. We've persevered. You know, people have run off and then they've come back. And uh, we do have a kind of a musical guest out between us where we we can read each other as players. And um, we get very tired of each other as individuals. But as musicians, I think everybody's come to respect um, what each person kind of brings to the table. And we've also kind of, I think we've had something that was hard for us and a lot of bands do. We've had a separation between what you are as a personality and what you are as a player. And like, as angry as I might get with the other three guys on a personal level, I can divorce that from what they can actually do as a player. But in the early days, it's all kind of mixed up, you know? And if you say to someone, oh, you're a fucking cunt, they mean, it also implies you can't play guitar either. Whereas these days, if I say you're a fucking cunt, but I love your guitar playing, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. And yeah, so so you sort of, it's a lot of kind of, it's like a country. You've got to get your um, constitution together when you start. You've got to figure out that, you know, you can have arguments about that you don't like each other, but you still, that you respect their playing and, and still you can get together as a mechanism and operate without the personalities in, intruding too much. Steve Kilby and the lead singer of The Church. The Church playing tomorrow night at the Great American Music Hall in San Francisco. Uh, something a little funny about uh, that previous segment is I also wrote an article based on uh, this interview for The Chronicle. And I've tried to see how far I can get away with, with uh, you know, F-bombs and stuff like that. And you could, you could throw an F-bomb in there. And um, what I usually do is I just tell the editor, hey, you know, I, I bold it out or I, I italicize uh, the swear words just to make sure your copy editor sees that and knows to put dashes or asterisks or whatever, you know. So before in some of my older articles, uh, whenever, whenever there was an F bomb, it was like F dash dash K, right? So anyway, so with fucking cunt, <laughs> that doesn't go. <laughs> cunt is the uh, cunt is the. Um, that's the limit that the uh, San Francisco Chronicle will go. They will not do C dash dash T. You can't even refer to cunt. It, it, it can't even be in your mind. Cunt? No. <laughs> okay? So for all you future writers out there, that's, I guess, the um, AP Manual of Style. You're listening to Pirate Cat Radio and Drinks with Tony. We're going to have more from Steve Kilby uh, in just a minute. But first off, here is something new from the church. The track is called Blow, and it's from their latest release, Uninvited Like the Clouds. This is the church. And anyway, so you're listening to Drinks with Tony. It's Saturday night. 
Uh, Steve Kilby is our guest, lead singer of the church. Tomorrow night, the church is playing at the Great American Music Hall. Here is segment two of my interview with Steve Kilby. You're listening to Pirate Cat Radio and Drinks with Tony. And, and what's, what's touring like for you? Do you feel it's uh, like a necessary evil or do you enjoy it? It's like, um, it's like Charlie Watts said, I've been in this band 40 years, five years of playing and 35 years of waiting around. Uh-huh. Um, I hate waiting around. I think that's the thing I hate most about being in a band is like going to a restaurant with the band and I've finished and I want to leave and the rest of the band are hanging around and I'm standing out the front of a restaurant looking in through a window or, you know, you, Marty's a classic one. You go shopping with Marty. I remember in Brussels four years ago, we were on stage at eight and I was standing in a record shop with Marty at seven and Marty's only up to the B's. <laughs> he only looked at the A's and the B's. I'm going, Marty, it's seven. <laughs> oh, yeah, man, no, no, I know Brussels. It's right. No, it's all right. I'm going, Marty, I, want to, I just want to go. I don't want to be here anymore. And sure enough, we went out and we couldn't get a cab and nobody knew the way. And we just got there in time. That kind of thing, that makes me frustrated, trying to fucking keep other people under control and trying to, you know, wait around for them. Or, you know, in the morning, you just want to get in the van and drive off and you can't, you know, you're waiting around. That's the most frustrating thing. The actual playing is always usually magical, and the, the, the playing is the great bit. It's just all the other stuff that has to go on, which is just a necessary thing, you know? Um, and and uh, from what I understand, uh, the, these shows will be uh, acoustic? Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I, I guess... Um, I guess, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, your choice Why they're of that? acoustic? Uh-huh. Okay. Um, well, first of all, um, Tim, the drummer, and I have very bad tinnitus, which is like ear damage. So the thought of doing five weeks electric, I just can't handle it. I just cannot handle it. I just, my ears my ears just can't take it. And they're, all, it's already, they're already so damaged that I can't, I can't hear most consonants people are saying. You know, I can't hear if they're saying you know, hop or stop or mop, you know, because the consonants are just under the level of the woo that's going all the time. Wow. So just just on that level alone, I can't handle an electric tour. Secondly, we um, we made this album, um, El Memento Desquadado, which was completely an acoustic aesthetic. It wasn't sort of hedging our bets like acoustic with a bit of electric which we kind of tried to do before. It was completely acoustic. There were, the, the, there were acoustic guitars, no sort of electric, electronic effects, no sort of string, string pads or sort of any distortion or anything. It was just completely what you could do with a, two acoustic guitars, um, a, a bass guitar, just sort of directly in the system and a drum kit and a piano and and the mandolin and the harmonica and that's what we and and we felt that it really worked and um we did some shows in australia and it's like you i always use the the comparison it's like a film and a play and i think playing electric is like a film and i think playing acoustic is like a play and you know i think a film has things to offer that a play doesn't have and i think the play has things to offer that the film doesn't have and I think one of the things that playing acoustically gives you is a kind of an intimacy with the crowd. It kind of breaks down that huge wall of noise and racket that um, 
sort of I don't know. I, I just felt I just felt when we've done this completely acoustic thing, we've c- connected with people a lot more. And it's funny because when I was an electric band, connecting with people wasn't one of my priorities at all. It was like here I am making my noise, stand back there and listen. And I've kind of at this incredibly late stage of the game, I've re- revised my um, what I think I want from an acoustic, what I want from a performance. And what I want to do now is connect because I've we did some acoustic shows without all that racket and and we were achieving the connection and I don't I sort of don't want to lose that connection again under a, a, a wall of electric cacophony. Wow, wow. Um, are are your sound checks a lot easier too? Oh, everything's a lot easier. And yeah. very selfishly, as the singer, for the first time in 25 years, I can hear myself sing which I could never do because I sing very quietly and I sing in a low voice. Uh-huh. And it just was always underneath the guitars and you could never get it up. Yeah. <clears throat> you could never get it up over the guitars and the drum kit and stuff bashing away. I could never hear what I was doing and I suspect nobody else could either because I always have people come back afterwards and go, yeah, it was a great show but I couldn't hear one word you sang and that's very dispiriting. And these days it's like I can hear myself singing, I can hear the other guys singing, we can, you know surprise we can actually harmonize with each other and everybody in the band singing and kind of um you know you can hear everything that's going on i think that's i think it's really important i don't want to give all that up just for the i think the trade-off is the power of of electricity but you i think we'll lose all those other things because we've never been able to get them being electric right right so 25 years ago, did you think the church would still be no. performing? No. No, it's 26 years now, dude. Oh wow! 20 okay. fucking six. Okay. It's like we've even broken the quarter of the century. No, I didn't. I thought we were like, I thought it was like all the other bands I've been in. It was sort of something that would last if for a year, two years. I remember when we'd been together in 1984. The Australian press was going, "Oh, the church has been around so long. They've they've wiped, they're washed up. You know, they're tired. People are sick of them." This was in 1984, you know, I've already been around so long, four years. So, you know, as you sort of, as you go on and on, your perspective just keeps getting broader and broader. Now, the 26 years seems to have gone by in a flash. And, you know, um, I've been in this, I've been in the band longer than, I've not been in the band, if you know what I mean. Oh, right, right. There's more of my life's been in the band than not in the band. Um, so no, I never thought. I, I hoped we would um, release one vinyl single and go and play in Melbourne. And that was my ambition. Maybe we can get one week's tour out of this band, and, and we'll release one vinyl single that I can, you know, forever wave around and go, look, I made a single one day. I never thought we'd make, you know, uh-huh. twenty albums and, and be together for twenty six years and get to go around the world a few times. And do you just sit back and think? Fuck yeah, or I mean, <laughs> you know, over your history, I guess. <laughs> well, you know, it's a funny thing because um, <clears throat> longevity isn't really one of the prime virtues of being a rock band. You know, when you think about when when you when you're a young man and and you're forming a band, being around for a long time isn't one of the things on top of your list. You know, it's like. You know, you want to be exciting and original and fucking make people angry or make people 
feel good or you know and do this and do that but you're not thinking oh let's be together for a long time so it's a it's a funny thing and it's like it's a bit of spin doctory to kind of suddenly turn around and go isn't this great we've been together for 26 years it's like a you know a fighter like or a racehorse it's like are you really supposed to still be out there doing it after all this time and um so it's kind of i don't know i don't go yeah Uh we've been together 20 i wish it was just the first year again because um there's something very exciting about that early period you know when it's all kind of flash and smoke and mirrors and stuff but um you know i i guess that's why i have to say you know we've got this other thing that you can get by playing together for such a long time but sometimes no it just feels like oh jesus you know why would anyone be interested in a band that's been together for 26 years you know Uh i guess I, i don't know yeah it's a funny thing to try and to make a virtue out of it you know steve kilby from the church on pirate cat radio you're listening to drinks with tony um that interview I recorded a, uh, about five weeks ago when he was on, in Australia before he started his tour with the church. The church playing tonight in, um, I think it's Madison or Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and then they're getting their ass to San Francisco for tomorrow night's show at the Great American Music Hall. Now, I need to say, um, half the interviews I go on, I walk away going, eh, you know, like, oh, you're, you're such a, you're such a public fucking whore okay and then the other half i walk away completely inspired and you know just just i am what i'm giving you right now is just kind of the highlights of um our telephone conversation but talking to steve kilby completely inspired afterwards that guy is down to earth uh he knows what it takes to keep a band together for 26 years he has no problem talking about the internal struggles everything it's so refreshing than the um my movie's great. I love the director and all my co-stars. Okay. Anyway, so that's that. Tomorrow night at the Great American Music Hall of the Church, you're listening to Pirate Cat Radio, 87.9 FM, San Francisco, Los Angeles, PirateCatRadio.com. In 2003, the church released uh, um, a CD called Forget Yourself. Here is Lalo by the church. We'll be back with more from Steve Kilby. You're listening to Powercat Radio, 87.9 FM, San Francisco, Los Angeles, PowerCatRadio.com. Drinks with Tony. Our guest tonight is Steve Kilby. Steve Kilby is the lead singer of The Church. That track was Lalo. Lalo off of Forget Yourself, their 2003 release. The Church playing tomorrow night, an acoustic show at the Great American Music Hall. Here is segment three of my interview with Steve, Kiel- Steve Kilby, the lead singer. You're listening to Drinks with Tony and Powercat Radio. Um, and you 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 have your fingers in a lot of creative projects. Um, do you do you have do you ever have like a creative block or have a hard never. time? Never, really. Never. I never have. I never have. I um I I do songwriting courses sometimes. I teach songwriting to sort of hopefuls, and they always got people who say, "I don't know what to write about." I never have that problem. Uh-huh. I've always known. I always know what to write about. Um, stuff just stuff just that's my the one thing I, that's the one problem i don't have and it's one problem the church never has the church never stands in the studio with our guitars and drums strapped on going now what are we going to no one knows we're fucking boiling over with stuff all the time our cup runneth over and my cup runneth over and it's because i don't know now it's always been like that for me i could always i could always 
do whatever I wanted to do uh, creatively. Um, and I've kind of, I've worked hard at different methods of uh, encouraging creativity in myself and in others, ways of imagining it, ways of approaching it, um, things to do in the studio when, when things bog down. I've kind of, I've, being a student of rock and roll, and I really am, and first and foremost, I'm a fan of rock and roll. I grew up idolizing people, but as also idolizing them, I was also watching them and watching them make their mistakes, watching them run out of creative juice, watching Mark Boland go from being the coolest and best songwriter in the world to being a bloated, cocaine-snorting idiot whose records I wouldn't go 100 miles near watching that process happening and kind of taking it on, all, on, on board myself and thinking, I don't want this to happen to me. And I've always kind of respected my... Oh, this sounds really fucking corny, but I've respected my creativity and I haven't tried to make it turn into a fucking drudge horse pulling a cart up a hill for me and I haven't abused it by trying to make it do things that it didn't want to do. And I've always kind of let it run where it's wanted to go, even if it meant it was being uncommercial. <clears throat> even if there was a guy from Arista Records going, you can't fucking write songs like this, no one's going to play them on the radio. I just had to turn around and go, but this is the song I'm writing. I can't, I, I'm not going to make it. I don't want to write under the Milky Way again. I can't. Even if I wanted to, I couldn't. I don't know how to, to do that. And secondly, Under the Milky Way was written by being the way I am now and I just have to trust the process and if it doesn't write a commercial song for you it's too fucking bad you know I just have to follow it where it goes and that's what I've done and that's why it's always been good to me because I've never tried to <clears throat> you know I don't I'm not the sort of guy that my publisher rings up and says I've got yeah, whoever that woman is that writes songs with Aerosmith and all that you know those songwriter songwriter types Uh -huh. You know, when they when the band's flagging, they get in these, these Max Martin or some big songwriter, and they come in and write, write the big power ballad. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I, won't, I won't do that. I won't sit in a room with somebody I don't like and try and knock out a song for the fucking sake of it, some meaningless piece of tripe. I won't do that. I, I sort of like... So that that's why I can keep dipping into my creativity because I sort of I let it go wherever it wants to go and if the church start making their next record and it's completely even more uncommercial than we already are already if that's where it's leading us that's where we'll follow and we we know better than to try and fuck with it because as soon as you start fucking with it and go oh no we've got to write a song for Arista we've got to write a song that you know KCRW will play we have to write a song that's like fucking, you know, the Arctic monkeys or whatever it is, that's when it all goes wrong and that's when you start knocking out stuff that nobody likes. You don't like it. <clears throat> Your old crowd who relied on you to do something cool doesn't like it. And the new crowd that you're trying to write something for in a faux way, they don't like it either. And then you end up completely fucked. And you see that happen to people all the time. They've got a good little career going they've got people who really dig them and then some idiot comes in and says oh you should fucking be more like this and the whole band go oh yeah we let's do that and then we'll be successful and they do it the old crowd abandons them they don't get the new crowd and that's it they're fucked but whoever the guy was that's whispering to them he's still going he's still got his job as a manager or an agent or a record company or whatever and he just finds somebody else to fucking you know so oh, no, now you should do this 
they don't lose their jobs, but you, you know, they fuck up your career and it's over for you. And, you know, rock and roll is very unforgiving. You know, if you're one thing, if you're, if you sort of got one career as one thing and then suddenly you turn around and try and be something else, you can't always do that. And, and you can't come back either. It's like Neil Young says, you know, once you're gone, you can never come back. You can't fucking turn around and go, oh, I didn't really mean, I didn't really want to be a boy band. Now can I have my hip career back? Yeah. So it doesn't work like that. So you've got to be careful with it. Steve Kilby from The Church on Pyrocat Radio and Drinks with Tony. Here is The Church with Youth Worshipper off their release Heyday from 1985. What's Heyday? <laughs> Did I say that right? Anyway, here is segment four of my interview with Steve Kilby. Then we'll be back at the seven o'clock hour with a lot of electronic dance music. You're listening to Pyrocat Radio and Drinks with Tony. So it sounds like you've shown um, integrity to your creativity. So maybe that's why your cup still runneth over. Um, in, well, integrity is a strange word. Um, mm. People, it's, it's and it's the kind of a thing. It's a bit of a thing. It's nice when other people say it about you. It's not something you can really claim for yourself. It's, it's hard to say. Yeah, we've got integrity. Uh, but I do, I do appreciate you saying that, and I do appreciate it when people notice and go, "Look, maybe the church don't sell a lot of records. Maybe they don't pull a lot of people. Maybe they're not fucking giving you two a run for the money." But one thing about them is they're true to themselves, and we are. And if that's integrity, being true to ourselves. Then, then yes, we do have that, and we do value that quality, and we, and and that's the thing that I like in other artists. You know, that's the thing that 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 makes me keep putting on a record that I like, or listening to a song that I've been listening to for thirty years. Is it is integrity, and I I don't like. It's like playing a game of something with someone who's letting you win. I don't like that. You know, I I want I I want people to know that when I make a record I've tried my fucking hardest and this is what I really wanted to do it's not some mishmash of what some suit wearing fucking idiot at Arista Records dreamt up for me because he just saw I don't know Spandau Ballet or fucking <laughs> Bright Eyes or whoever on TV and said you should be like this and then I sort of jumped jumped and gone oh yeah I'm gonna you know what I mean? It's like I've done what I've wanted to do. Sometimes it's been successful, sometimes, and now, right now, it isn't very successful and probably never will be again. But, um, you know, at least at least when you buy a church record, you get a record by the church, not by a, a, a conglomerate of, of idiots who aren't musicians thinking, second-guessing what they think the public want, which is what a lot of records are these days. Yeah, I, it's yeah. It seems to be more and more actually with all the American Idol bullshit karaoke. Exactly, exactly, exactly. It's like it's gone. This is the thing, man. Okay, now I'm 50, I'm almost fifty-two, so I've lived through a few periods of rock, and I remember the fifties. I was only very young, but I still remember it. And it was all boy meets girl, and it was kind of like you know this sing along dance along but nothing meant anything there was no real emotion there's no connection and then suddenly for your eyes the Beatles come along and then the Beatles after two years have gone from I want to hold your hand to fucking strawberry fields forever suddenly it's getting interesting this whole thing is really interesting you've got 
The Who and Jimi Hendrix and the Stones, each one competing each week to release a single that outdoes the other one for more commitment, more involvement, more emotional impact. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. You can't believe it, an embarrassment of riches. Rock music's gone from being Pat Boone and fucking, you know, Pleasant Valley. It's gone into this thing which is actually a, a living, breathing art form. And then when I see where it is now... It might as well be 1950s again, but, you know, with, with different technology. Because right. the, the values have gone back to that same shit. That same, well, the popular values. I mean, of course, there's always people working in the, in the underground and not in the mainstream. But the mainstream values are, you know, sell records, be a pretty face, be disposable, sing songs that a committee has, has written for you, which is just the same as all the other songs. Um, I, I find it disappointing. I don't want to be part of that. And, um, yeah, I think American Idol and Australian Idol and all that has sort of brought this whole singing, dancing, Las Vegas kind of routine back to the whole pop music industry, which disappoints me because I thought once upon a time it could have been a lot more than that. I thought it was in the hands of the people, for the people, of the people, and was saying that things that the people wanted to hear. And not only that, but was fucking changing the world. You know, the Beatles fucking changed the world, but Kelly Clarkson ain't going to change the world. <laughs> exactly. Steve, thank you so much for taking the time out to talk with oh, me. Oh, my pleasure. Okay, great. Hey, have Thanks a good day. Soon, yeah, okay. I'll see Bye. you. Amen, amen, and amen to the church. That was Steve Kilby, lead singer of the church, our guest tonight on Drinks with Tony. Steve, thank you so much for taking the time out to talk with me tomorrow night at the Great American Music Hall. Go see the church doing an acoustic set. Uh, Nine o'clock is their stage time. The show starts at eight, and I forget who's opening. Damn it. I forget a lot of things these days. Anyway, now it's time to dance. Uh, 415-970-0698 is the phone number in the studio. If you have a request, here it is PIL. You're listening to Drinks with Tony and Pirate Cat Radio.